There's something magical about miso, butter, steak, fire. It just tastes delicious. When the sun is shining, there is nothing I like to do more than fire up the barbecue. And as we enjoy one of the most prolonged spells of hot weather since probably last summer, it's about time I gave you my secrets on how to make the perfect barbecue. Fucking oh, juices, man. Mm -mm. In this episode, I'll be giving you all the tips you need from the perfect fuel, the best ingredients, and the right techniques to mean you'll never suffer a burnt sausage ever again. Oh, that's how I want to be cooked. My name is Tommy Banks, and this is the first episode of the summer season of Seasoned. Every week, I'll be inviting you to spend some time at my farm and at my restaurant, The Black Swan. You'll meet my family and my awesome team of chefs, and together we'll tell you how we prepare our menu, grow and create our unique ingredients, and how it all comes together on the plate. And we'll be giving you loads of tips, telling you what's in season, how to cook it, and of course, how to eat it. If you're wanting to live a bit more seasonally, then come and join us. We'll be with you every week throughout the summer. So, welcome back. This is Seasoned, episode 11, The Great British Barbecue. So then, did you miss us? I've got to be honest, the last few weeks have been incredibly busy, and in this episode, I'll tell you all the things that we've been up to. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about something which is brand new for this season on the podcast. We've launched something called Well Seasoned. It's our special members club, and I think you'll love it. The podcast is still going to be here and for free, just like it always has been. But Well Seasoned gives you all of that and a load more besides. I'm talking bonus content, recipes straight to your inbox, a monthly newsletter, restaurant recommendations and more. And if that wasn't enough, we're running some unbelievable giveaways as well. And I can say unbelievable because I honestly didn't think we'd be able to do this. Every month, we're giving away a money-can't-buy prize. Like a day foraging with me and Dickie, a tour of the farm, and then dinner and a stay on us at the Black Swan. Or how about a trip down to Lord's Cricket Ground and lunch in our incredible Edrich restaurant prepared by my two superstar head chefs, Callum and Will. These giveaways are only for members of Well Seasoned, and you can join the club for just £5 a month. It's super easy to join. Just visit www.tommybanks.co.uk forward slash seasoned or visit the link which is in our show notes. Once you've signed up, you'll get a bonus recipe sent straight away. You'll get our weekly and monthly members only content and you'll be automatically entered into the prize draw. And if I were you, I'd get on it early because at the end of June, we're going to be drawing out our first winner who will be getting their hands on an incredible Kasai Grill barbecue with lots of tools and utensils hand designed by me. It's a package worth over a grand and it could be yours. So what are you waiting for? Tommybanks.co.uk forward slash seasoned. Sign up now and enjoy being a part of the Well Seasoned Club. So when I last left you, the weather was just starting to warm up. It's only a few weeks ago, but the farm is now completely different. Let me show you what's changed. Mm. 
Now then, TB. I was hoping I'd see you. Ah, oh, now then. We've suddenly swung from being the wettest March I can remember into a dry month of May. And the, 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 the rain virtually turned off. So it's switched completely. We had all them podcast guests come up in February and March when it was real wet and horrible. And now it's beautiful and dry. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> For the last few months, you've had calving and lambing yeah. and pigs giving birth as well. So it's so that 24-7 monitoring, whereas now it's actually more weather related, isn't it? There's sometimes more than you can do in a day, sometimes more than you can do in a week. You start off with a week, the plan, look, we've got to do this, 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 this. You get to the end of the week, we just couldn't do it, could we? My dad never appears to be tired, but there was a time a few weeks ago when every night he'd be up and dealing with one of the cows. I guess it's the life of a farmer, but we definitely had a longer calving period than we would have wanted. These are the last three cows who are desperate to calve, but they haven't done it yet. We've, we've actually kept them in because they're underneath the cameras and we can keep an eye in the middle of the night. As you know, every calf gets a name and we got to X in the alphabet. So I guess that means we got 24 calves in total this year. And while the cows were all inside during the spring months, they're now able to go out and enjoy the fields and roam around the lush grass. So, do you think we're going to have enough hay this winter to feed all the cattle? Tell me whether we're going to get a drought again, because it's starting towards a drought now. So, all our cattle are grass-fed, so we need lots of grass to feed them. If we get a year like last year, where we had a bad drought, there just simply isn't enough grass grown. Um, so, there's one thing feeding them on grass all summer, but you need to harvest enough grass to feed them through the winter as well. So, whether that's making hay or silage. How is your hay? All right. I cut it uh, two days ago, we had sunshine all day the day I cut it, dull day yesterday, sunshine again today, it's making nicely, Whoa. it's just looking good. But the secondary growth isn't going to happen if we don't get some rain. So when would you look to get a second cut of hay? Oh, in another six weeks to two months time, August. We don't know if it's going to happen or not, if it comes a bit of rain next week, no problem. Away from the animals and the polytunnels at the back of the farm are looking completely different too. So yeah, last season, this polytunnel was full of pigs, but they've done their job now. And uh, now we've got some tomatoes and peppers all planted out here. These kohlrabi are actually nearly ready. But it's amazing what, how many crops we can get out of this polytunnel in a year. And you think the pigs were in here to start off with. These are peppers, tomatoes, which were already flowering some of these actually, which is good for us. So, season has really changed, it's, it feels nice, but it's still that time at the start of summer where we don't have a finished produce, and like, look at these tomatoes, they smell incredible, but they've just got flowers on the plant, so realistically, we're looking at another five weeks before we have tomatoes ready for the menu. So it's this really challenging time of year for me as a chef, because it's beautiful weather, it's hot, it's dry, people want to eat nice, flavoursome summer food, but it's still growing for us, really. In the distance, I can see row after row of crops which have been planted by hand. The guys have worked tirelessly and my mum has been non-stop in those fields, making sure everything is in the ground when it needs to be. In a few weeks time, we'll have an abundance of carrots and potatoes and the peas will be soon. Fantastic. Up at the restaurant, in the garden, it's a similar story. It's so much fresher and more alive. All the herbs have come through, we've got the first lettuces, and the strawberries and tomatoes, they're all threatening to make an appearance soon too. 
And of course, that's not the only thing that has changed in the last few weeks. We opened a new pub too. The Abbey Inn is just a mile or so from the Black Swan, positioned overlooking the incredible Byland Abbey. The, but the wonderful thing about the Abbey Inn is it, it sort of completes the circle. We've got these sort of high Michelin star restaurants and now we've got a, what we call a pub as well. So it sort of fits in that we're serving all parts of our animals, all parts of our, you know, multiple uses for some of the vegetables mm. now that we've got somewhere for them to go. Whereas in the past, the chef at the Black Swan might say, mm, I don't know whether I want that or not. It's not fancy enough for me. The interesting thing now with the animals is I've got like spreadsheets where I'm like, right, well, I'm making this with this part and I'm making sausages for here and I've got pork chops on the specials board at the Abbey and I'm using the bellies for Sunday lunch. Mm. But then Callum's having all the jowls and the fillets and actually like it's like a game of uh, sort of fit the right thing in the right place. But, but it's, mm. it's really good fun. It really closes the loop on the farming. I'll give you a full tour of the Abbey Inn a little bit later in the episode, but first, I'd better get started with some cooking. This week, we decided to build the episode around the Great British Barbecue. It's one of my favorite ways to cook and one that I see so many people getting wrong. So with a whole summer ahead of us, I figured it was the perfect time to give you some tips on what to do and what not to do. There's a lot of elements that go into the perfect barbecue, but let's begin at the beginning, fuel. I think first things first when you're cooking a barbecue, uh, the most important thing is probably the fuel. Um, some people have gas barbecues and they're sort of quick and easy, but you don't get the flavour that you get by cooking over good quality charcoal or wood. And that is really important that you have good quality charcoal. You'll see it, if you just go to um, the, you know, the, the garage or something and get a quick bag of briquettes, they often smoke quite a lot and they don't have the best flavour, so I'd always choose a lump wood charcoal over briquettes. It burns better and cleaner, and you don't get that sort of dirty smoke. You get a much cleaner cook. So always look for lump wood over briquettes. And then if you want to get more fancy, there's a Japanese charcoal called Binjitan, which is what we use in our restaurants, which burns really hot and really long but doesn't uh, have, it's all pretty much smokeless. So it's, it's hotter than your lumpwood or briquettes, but less smoky. Um, and also you can reuse it. So if you extinguish it in some water, then you can use it again for the next time, which is, even though it's more expensive, it probably ends up more cost effective because you can use it time and time again. I think if you're cooking with cheap fuel, like uh, instant barbecue or uh, the, the briquettes, your window of opportunity is just smaller. So um, you need to light it early enough that you get the, the coals hot and the, a lot of the smokes burn off, but then you've got to cook on it quickly before it cools down. Um, hence why it's just always better to have bigger lumps of lumpwood charcoal or binchitan where once you've got it hot, it'll stay hot for hours and you've got lots of time to cook. I think one of the things that people struggle with the most is getting the barbecue to light. I think it's fine to use fire lighters so long as you use the natural ones. If you use the, uh, the petrol-based ones, sort of the white biscuity ones that you see, they, um, they can impart a lot of sort of nasty, toxic sort of flavours into your food. So always look for the ones that look more like woven rope, the more natural ones. Um, but the best thing is kindling. Okay, so you've got your fuel. Now, what are you cooking on? I think one of the things that people don't necessarily realise is the little uh, draw holes on your barbecue is how you let air in and air out so you can control the heat of the barbecue. So when you lighten the barbecue you need those slots right open 
which gets lots of air through and helps with it lighting. But once you get it up to temperature, to stop your coals from burning too quickly and to keep your heat for longer, you can slide those closed, not maybe totally closed, but slide them a lot more closed. So then therefore they have a lot less oxygen coming in and the fire will slow down a bit. So that's a good tip. Get yourself a wire brush because they are really good for scrubbing the uh, grill for. It keeps it nice and clean in between cooks. Um, and then really it's down to, to what you use. In our restaurants we use the Kasai grill and I use that at home just because it's really easy. You'll see them on a lot of TV shows. They're like a Japanese style box barbecue and they're easy to carry around. They're really light um, and effective to use. So you can take them camping or you can use it at home or in the restaurant, it's, it's perfect. I really won't endorse anything I don't use and the Kasai grill I've got here is my own personal one. They're sturdy, safe, easy to control and the Kasai system means you can set up a rack and configure your barbecue just how you want it. Yes, you can get by with any old grill or even a disposable, but I reckon a proper barbecue is an investment which will last you for years. And if you want to get your hands on one like mine, get over to my well-seasoned club. We're giving away a Kasai grill and a full range of utensils and tools designed by me. To be in with a chance of winning, all you need to do is subscribe to my well-seasoned club. All the details are in the show notes or visit tommybanks.co.uk forward slash seasoned. For £5 a month, you'll be in with a chance of winning that grill and a bunch of other amazing prizes. I'll be back with more barbecue tips shortly, but if you listen to the first series, you'll know there's a whole team of chefs behind me, and one of them, Dickie, has been up to his old tricks, developing a dish around what might be our strangest ingredient ever, Japanese knotweed. I'll let him explain. So we are currently at a private estate right next to uh, Byland Abbey. So. We were driving past one day and we saw um, these really tall uh, sort of dried canes which was basically the remains of last year's Japanese knotweed which as most people don't know is a highly invasive plant um, and isn't very good at all if, you're, uh, if you've got a house because it can actually damage the um, foundations. Uh, so we were like, we heard a few rumours of things that you could do with it. So. We thought, well, we'll just pop in and see if we can take a bit. So spoke to the, the owner and he, he was like, yeah, just feel free. We're constantly trying to get rid of it. It's just almost impossible to eradicate. It grows so fast. I mean, it can grow up to a foot in a day in the right conditions. So what we're going to do is just literally with a knife, just cut um, low down. We're only about, they're only about six or eight inches tall at the minute. So this is perfect. Like they're still quite soft and juicy. Uh, inside so we just cut that and you can see it almost looks I think it almost looks a bit sort of asparagusy uh, in its appearance it's got those kind of like nodes of where it's it's growing up um, and when you you know snap that and then you taste it and it's got it literally tastes like rhubarb unbelievable I think that's where our job is so interesting if you call it that because it's just constant sort of journey of discovery and something that you know Japanese knotweed almost sounds a bit sort of scary really so you sort of think oh I'll just stay away from that but you realize that so much of this you know greenery that you walk past is actually edible um, and you can eat this raw it's, it's fine but I mean we just taste that 
It just tastes like so citrusy. Obviously, disclaimer alert, if you're going to go hunting for knotweed, do get the landowner's permission before you dig any up or take it away. And if you're doing that, be extra careful not to leave bits of it lying around in your own garden, or you might have more than you bargained for. So we've got loads here, we've got two full baskets, so I think we'll uh, head back to the farm and uh, get a few trials underway. With a bumper harvest of knotweed, Dickie is going to try and create a new dish, and we'll catch up with him later to see how he gets on. Perhaps the biggest piece of news from the last few weeks has been the opening of our first gastro pub, the Abbey Inn, and I promised you a quick tour. Here we are, the new pub. I absolutely love this place. There's just so many memories for me as well, because my first job was here. Literally had my first beers there. I used to work as a pot wash. It was like really hard work. It always is in a kitchen. And then finish my shift and sit in that corner on a sofa and have a beer and fall asleep. It was perfect. It was, I just love growing up in a restaurant. So much fun. People have been coming in and just like, it looks like it used to look, but the thing is, there's this beautiful stone flag floors, all the brickwork, exposed stone. So the last thing you want to do is, is really change any of that. But there's been a lot of work in here in the last few months. My wife, Charlotte, and her mum have been roped in. They did like three weeks worth of painting just to get it up in time. I think we've uh, had a lot of favors from a lot of friends to get ready, but it, I just think it looks great. It's really charming pub, which was what I really wanted. The whole pub has had a total refurb and I want it to be cosy, relaxing, somewhere you can enjoy a pint and a pork pie as well as a delicious three course meal. And getting it open on time was a close run and very hard thing. I think we had about two hours to spare. Opening the Abbey was hard. I mean, I'd forgotten how hard it is. When we opened Roots, that was really difficult and uh, I sort of thought this would be easier, but it was really exhausting. I think. It's really funny, you spend your time as a chef and running businesses trying to like get everything perfect and get all your systems in place. But then when you open somewhere fresh, it's like learning to do it all over again. Um, I must admit, I've not been as tired as I've been opening this in a very, very long time. But the team have done incredibly well. It was, like always, these things go to the wire. You put deadlines on things, but ultimately, whatever the deadline is, you always end up going to the deadline. Uh, but we're ready on time. As well as the menu, we're serving daily specials. My favourite has been probably the pork chop from our Berkshire pigs. It's exactly why we opened the pub, a cut which we probably wouldn't serve at the Black Swan, but here it's perfect. It's hearty and it's all full of flavour. It's been absolutely flying out. So as you walk in, I think it, it feels very homely, you know, it's a very nice, light, airy uh, space, but very traditional. Um, we made all the tables on the farm, um, but we've stained them quite dark, and I think they look older. They don't look like brand new tables. I mean, crikey, these weren't even ready a few hours before we opened. They were touch and go. But I think they, they look fantastic. So it's a really nice place to sit. 
And I, and I just think it's the sort of food that, that people want to eat every day. You know, like, I mean, I'm so passionate about the black swan and roots, but that is a meal that you have once a year, maybe, and it's really, really special. Whereas I'm really hopeful that people will come here every week because it's changing menu as well with the farm. So we've got beautiful, this week we've got these beautiful pork chops from our Berkshire pigs. So pork chops, render the fat down, pork chop fries, a nice fresh salad of uh, mustard leaves that AB's grown. And like, what? why would you not want to eat that? Pork and chips with salad. That's the perfect, uh, perfect start to a meal. But the star of the show is the Byland Burger. If you listen back to episode six, you'll hear how we developed that dish and tested it out on Harry Biker, Dave Myers. He gave it his seal of approval, so it's little wonder that almost half of our diners are coming to the Abbey and wanting to order one. People talk about the burger all the time. Uh, I think people like the fact that there's just no food miles. Well, literally two fields away is where the, the cattle are. Um, but yeah, we're cooking a lot of burgers. There's also a kids' menu, bar snacks, and my favourite, the soft serve ice cream. We're doing it as a little take on one of my signature dishes with a Douglas fir parfait and lemon verbena. I'm pretty sure we're the only pub in the world serving a Douglas fir ice cream sundae. But you knew my food wouldn't be that boring, right? It kind of blows my mind that there was nothing here for so long beforehand because the amount of people who visit the Abbey and then they just sat outside enjoying the beer garden, having a pint... It's just such a nice place to be. I think we definitely did the right thing opening it this time of year, though. Things are starting to tick into place now, and all credit has to go to the team. We've made a monumental effort to get the Abbey Inn open. Head Chef Charlie, along with the Kitchen Brigade, really stepped up. The food is looking awesome. And, you know, in the front of the house, quite a lot of new guys, and they're doing an awesome job. All the menus are designed great. We did it, guys, and I couldn't be prouder of everyone, so thank you very much. And through here, this is where the magic happens, the kitchen, which uh, there's so much nostalgia for me in here, because it's, uh, yeah, literally started my pot wash career in this corner, my hospitality days. I, just, I remember the induction really distinctly. The head chef, a guy called Mark, passed me the green scourer, and he just said, this is your friend, and that was it left me to it, 14 years old, first day of work. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not changed massively, the layout's all the same. Do you know, I think getting a job in your early teens in hospitality, I know um, not as many people do it nowadays, but I think it really taught me how to graft. I mean, washing pots is really hard work, but I thought it was great for me. Uh, I loved working with older people, it taught me a real work ethic, and, and sort of introduced me to, to food as well. We're actually starting our apprenticeship scheme this year, so we've got by September we'll have six apprentices in the business. I think it's so important, and this is going to be a great kitchen for young chefs to start in because the food is maybe on paper a little bit more simple with you know steak and chips and things like that, but it's all the principles of a Michelin-star restaurant. So I think it's going to be the perfect uh, breeding ground for young chefs to really nurture talent. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about this kitchen is like all the businesses, but here I think we can really bring through some young people and, and get them trained up to be brilliant chefs. Outside we've got a huge beer garden, the space for the kids to have a run around while you enjoy a beer, and while we're not planning on having a barbecue outside just yet, that's where I've put mine today and it's heating up nicely. 
Earlier, I talked you through how to choose the perfect grill and the perfect fuel for your ultimate barbecue. So next, I think we should choose the perfect meat to cook. Obviously, if you're anything like me, when you think about a barbecue, you're thinking about what meat you can put on it, and I really think everything goes well. Uh, I like to have a good mix, though. I think it's great to have some sausages and some burgers, because they're the sort of traditional things you think of from a barbecue, and obviously the kids absolutely love them. And the other thing is, because they've got lots of fat content on them, you can cook them first and let them rest. I like to use like a rack system on top of my barbecue, so I cook my sausages, I leave them up top, they're not going to dry out, but also all the smoke comes up and it just makes them even more delicious. Um, any sort of steak cooks well on the barbecue. If it's something like the bavette that I'm cooking today, which is really cheap, you can cook that quickly and serve it rare, or you can do something fantastic like a big sharing steak, a, a huge coat de boeuf or something, which would be a real showstopper. Um, chicken is, is brilliant. All cuts of chicken work well on the barbecue and are quicker to cook. Again, they're something that you can cook earlier on and leave to rest, especially things like your drumsticks and your thighs and your wings, which uh, are cooked on the bones, so the more time they have to rest, sort of the, the nicer the cook will be on them. So the easiest steaks to cook on the barbecue are obviously thinner things like your minute steaks or even just like a flat sirloin or ribeye steak, but often it's nice to cook a bigger sharing cut, so whether it's like a big tomahawk or a big bone or a big ribeye steak, or even when sometimes people cook fillet steak and they can be quite sort of deep, um, it's harder to get that really nice even cook throughout it because you've got such an intense heat from the barbecue. So I think the first thing you've got to do is make sure the steak's roomed up and warm before it goes on the barbecue. So don't cook it straight from the fridge. You shouldn't do that anyway, but especially on a barbecue, make sure it's nice and warm. Maybe even sit your steaks next to the barbecue, far enough away from the dog, hopefully, but next to the barbecue so it's already sort of tepid and warm before you put it on. That's a big helping hand. And then get all your caramelization on the outside. Let's say you've got a big tomahawk steak and you're holding that bone. Get all the caramelization you want on the outside and then lift it off and leave it to rest for a little bit and then put it back on again. So you're not absolutely hammering the outside of the steak to get the cooking degree right in the middle. You know, I think you can take it on and off, on and off the barbecue, gradually bringing up the temperature in the middle whilst caramelizing the outside. I think fundamentally cooking on a barbecue is the same as any other sort of cooking. You've got to have attention to detail and you've got to do things slowly and, and right. And I think too often people just chuck things on the barbecue, go around and pour some drinks, have another drink, come back and usually everything's sort of a bit, a bit black. And, and what we're looking for is attention to detail and cooking slowly and getting that nice caramelization um, and it's worth it. If you're hosting a barbecue, there's a good chance that one of your guests might not eat meat. Hey, they might not eat fish either, but I reckon there's a lot of great ingredients you can cook which are veggie friendly. I think the possibilities are really endless. From a vegetable point of view, in the middle of summer, there's so many things, but I think courgettes are one of the absolute best things to cook on a barbecue. You can really blister up the skin, um, but then get some really nice colour on the actual flesh itself. They take loads of fat and loads of salt, and I just think they're really delicious. Lettuces are another fantastic thing. I like to take things like a big um, gem lettuce or almost like a romaine lettuce, something with a heart on it, cut it in half and cook it almost like a steak. You get them lovely outer leaves get really crispy and frilly, but then the inside leaves sort of get really sweet and they've got enough water content inside them that they don't really burn. So grilled lettuces are a fantastic thing to have. 
um, especially you can use them to sort of mop up all the juices of the rest of the barbecue. Lastly, there's one more element you need to get right. That's the marinades. I'm talking big flavor, complementing the meat, and there's a few rules I think you need to obey. Meat cooked on the barbecue is always fantastic, um, and people like to marinate it, and I think that's a really good thing to do. So things that I look to try and use, firstly is miso. I think it's just got an amazing flavor. You can make a simple miso butter, brush that on literally anything, and you get a wonderful umami flavor. And another one which is great is black garlic. You see it a lot in the supermarkets now. It has that same sort of flavor that you get from caramelizing meat, and it sort of sounds fancy, looks fancy. So I think that's a really nice thing to do. What I do avoid doing though is using too much sugar or honey because that can burn quite quickly. I think if you want to use a sweeter style glaze, it's maybe almost best brushed on as the meat's resting rather than exposing it to the high heat because often what you end up with is sort of raw meat that's totally black on the outside when there's a really sweet marinade. So that's it. If you followed my advice and you've got all the ingredients for a perfect barbecue, and in just a minute, I'll walk you through how to make sure they all cook perfectly. But earlier, Dickie was out in the wilds collecting up some Japanese knotweed, and down in the depths of our pastry kitchen, he's been knocking up a few dishes with it. So knotweed, uh, we've got brought back from the estate that we forage it on locally. It almost looks uh, like a cross between sort of uh, asparagus and almost rhubarb in colour. Um, so we're just going to see what we can do with this. So we've got a few different ideas. So we're thinking like maybe a compote or a jam. Um, we're also going to try drying some for teas. Um, so that could be quite interesting. See if we can unlock some of that sort of asparagusy rhubarb flavour going on. So in terms of preparation of this, we're just basically going to chop it or remove the, the sort of uh, root there. We've taken the leaves off at the estate because you don't want to risk transporting any. It's so invasive that it, you know if there's a, a seed head or anything like that, it could end up growing here, which we don't really want. It's hard enough to control it as it is. So, left all the leaves behind. Take those roots off. So we're just going to chop it up into sort of centimeter pieces like that, and then with the upper part which is a bit softer we're just gonna slice that so we'll put that stuff for the tea we'll just spread really thin on a tray and dehydrator uh, and we'll just dehydrate that low temperature so 35 degrees for 24 hours and we'll see what that's like tomorrow. Okay, so we're just gonna try the compote next. So we're just gonna add a kilo of this sliced knotweed. So you can see it's like almost, well it is hollow inside. It's kind of got that sort of bamboo cross section to it. So we're gonna add a kilo of that into there. We won't need to add any water because it's um, reasonably high hydration anyway and then we're just going to add 200 grams of sugar to that and then also got here just 40 grams of pectin it's quite high in pectin anyway so it will set naturally but we're just going to add a little bit just to help it along its way 
and then we'll just slowly cook that out for probably 15 or 20 minutes until it comes down to a sort of jammy compotty texture. So this is getting there now. As you can see, there's quite a lot of moisture come out of there. So we just need to cook it out for a bit longer, uh, get rid of some, some more of that moisture and just get that real jammy consistency that we're after. So now this has come right down. It's like really sticky. You can see there it's really sort of jam-like. This has kind of unfortunately lost a lot of the green vibrancy that uh, you can see from the fresh knotweed there. Um, but I think this is going to be, it probably wouldn't be ideal served on a, you know, on breakfast or something like that to spread on your toast. But in terms of flavour, it's absolutely banging. I love your ambition, Dickie, but there's not a chance we'll be serving that greeny brown paste. Better move on to plan B. As delicious as it is, the colour is not ideal. So I think we need to probably try and work on that going forward, but we can try a few different um, other techniques. So one thing that we're probably quite famous for is um, umeboshiing various fruits and vegetables from the garden and farm. So I think we should definitely try some umeboshi uh, knotweed and see how we get on with that. Umeboshi, Japanese style of preserving. We use quite a lot of Japanese techniques here. So basically um, in Japan they pick all their unripe plums uh, and salt them quite heavily uh, and then ferment them. And then what we've done is applied that technique but to some um, of our garden ingredients. So we do it already with forced rhubarb in the winter Green strawberries we do uh, sort of early summer and then late summer. Something that I thought we'd try is uh, the same process with the knotweed. So I'm going to cut it into sort of two inch pieces, just through like that. And you can see that beautiful round shape, almost looks a bit like bamboo, it's hollow in the centre. We're just going to add 8% salt. So we've just got uh, molden sea salt, which has just been blended into a a sort of finer salt uh, and we're just going to add that and then we we'll just give that a really good mix up um, and then we're just going to leave that so we have a little uh, room where we do all the fermentation so that's it uh, 16 degrees consistently um, but at home I'd probably just somewhere like not too warm but probably just you know on your kitchen bench where it's sort of 16 to 20 degrees something like that will be absolutely perfect um, and then yeah sort of six to eight weeks later we'll just basically give it a really good wash to remove as much salt as possible and then we'll just make a, a really nice pickle so that's uh, equal weight white wine white wine vinegar and sugar jar it leave it and we'll probably leave what we tend to do with all these sort of pickles and preserves like this uh, we try and leave it a year before we use it this is more like it. The knotweed is taking on a whole new flavour profile and it's unique to anything else I've tried before. So we'll get this fat pack down now and in a few weeks time we'll uh, revisit this and see how we're, we're getting on. We'll give this ingredient a few more tweaks to develop and then if we like it we'll gather as much as we can and start to build a dish around it for the next summer's service. Nothing like planning ahead eh?
Earlier on, I showed you how to prepare a perfect barbecue, but all of that time and effort counts for nothing if you then char everything to a crisp or serve something up undercooked. So pay attention because I'm going to walk you through it step by step. So when your barbecue is ready to cook on, you want to see the coals glowing white. I'm using binchitan, which uh, literally translates from Japanese as white coals, so you can actually see how white these are. But uh, really, you don't want to be seeing any flame. Yeah, there might be a few lick up when you start cooking, but all the flame should have died down, and hopefully your coals are really bright white and hot, and you should be able to feel heat up here. So I've gone for an awesome bavette steak. It also gets called skirt or goose steak. So it's got three, a few different names if you go to the butchers. I just think it's um, an awesome cut because it's very, very cheap. So I've got two eight ounce steaks there and they cost me seven pounds. So it's about as cheap a steak you can get. Uh, and this is effectively a muscle from the diaphragm. Um, so it's a nice thin muscle. And what you do is you cook it very rare. So it's a perfect thing to cook on a barbecue, slice really thinly, and then you can dress it in something like, I don't know, salsa verde or, or chimichurri or something like that um, and the other thing I've done is made a miso butter which is basically uh, butter brown butter so I've uh, let it uh, caramelize a little bit and added miso to it this is a miso that Dickie makes on the farm and it is delicious that sound and smell it's addictive with this cut, because you want it quite rare, I'd actually cook it on a high heat and then rest it probably for longer than I've cooked it for and then slice it really thinly but this miso butter will go really well with anything. I like it with fish as well on the barbecue. Use a pair of tongs to keep picking up and moving the food and keep an eye out for where the hottest bit of the barbecue is. You can rotate the different food around the grill to make sure it cooks evenly. So I think for a lot of people, they worry about getting too much color, almost burning the food on a barbecue. And the secret to not doing that is actually to make sure that your barbecue's at the right temperature before you start cooking so the coals have died down enough. So you can see that this is cooking nicely, but there's no flames, there's no smoke. But if I lift that up, you're getting a really nice color on there. It's not black, it's not like when you see people's sausages that have been cremated. It's actually just getting a beautiful caramelization, which is all flavor. The flames lick up because I've added the fat to it. So as the butter drips off, that'll set fire. And I get a little bit of flame. If it's too much, which is just done because the wind's just blown, just pull it to the side, let it die out, which it will, and then just start cooking again. If you've got your barbecue set up just right, you can keep the sausages and burgers warm on the top without them suddenly overcooking, and with a bit of luck, you can serve everything all at once. There you have it, less than a tenner, steak, asparagus, easy. Oh, juices, man. Mm -mm. Steak, asparagus, done, and you can't stop me tucking in. Yeah, I just there's something magical about miso, butter, steak, fire. It just tastes delicious. Also, I think we must have cooked on open fire when we were cave people. So therefore, I think in our brains, there's something delicious about it. It just tastes incredible. Mmm. That's how I want to be cooked. I really hope that this episode has taught you one or two things about how to perfect your barbecue skills. Why not put them into practice tonight and send in some pics of what you managed to rustle up? I'd love to see them.
And don't forget, if you want to be in with a chance of winning an incredible Kasai grill, just like the one I use, then join my well-seasoned club. We'll be picking out a winner on this podcast in two weeks' time, so get in quick. All the details on the show notes are at tommybanks.co.uk forward slash seasoned. I'll also be giving my well-seasoned members some extra content with my miso butter recipe, a barbecue potato salad, a load of tips for barbecue and fish, which I know is a super popular addition to a summer party, and I'll share an idea for a barbecue pudding too. Love it. So that's it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It's nice to be back. We've got lots more planned for the rest of the season. And if you've got ideas of things you'd like us to cover, ingredients you don't know how to use, or questions you want to ask, get in touch. Seasoned at tommybanks.co.uk. And don't forget to help us spread the word. Tell your friends. Over the next three months, we can have a summer adventure together. Seasoned is a What's the Story podcast. It's presented by me, Tommy Banks, and my producers are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis.